Now we're turning, uh, as you know, to John's Gospel, chapter 12, and we're going to read the first uh, 11 verses there today. If you're using the church Bible, you will find the passage on page 1079, if you've got one that looks like that. If it doesn't look like that, it's probably on some other page, 1079. So let's hear God's word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus, her brother, was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, who was Lazarus's sister, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Sure, we have enough male students in the congregation who are secretly in love, and a number of you old secret romantics who are still in love, and the question is, how much is she worth to you? Now, I speak not from precise experience, but simply from observation. If you really want to impress her, this is what you do. You gather all the credit cards you can find. doesn't matter whether they're yours or somebody else's. And you go to the perfume counter and you hold yourself together as though you were doing this every day of the week. And you ask for a Mary of Bethany size, Clive Christian, number one. Got it? A Mary of Bethany size. I include that only to give you an opportunity to witness to the salesperson. Okay? But you ask for a Mary of Bethany size, Clive Christian, number one. And you will need all your credit cards and your family's credit cards because that will knock you back about 
£25,000 by today's reckoning. Or if it's will, it's going to be about $35,000 in one of those fancy stores in New York. That's the equivalent of what Mary of Bethany, verse 3, poured over the feet of Jesus and began to wipe with her hair. So it's not surprising as soon as the aroma could be smelt, there was probably a moment of silence in the room. I imagine she came up behind him. Uh, She doesn't seem to have been the kind of woman who would do this with great demonstration and uh, trumpets blowing. But quietly, before anyone could stop her. And the perfume is all over Jesus' feet. And the aroma, we're told, not only filled the house, uh, it filled the house. It filled the house. There was... There was no escape from what Mary of Bethany had done. And I'm sure for a moment there was, there was totally stunned silence. There would be. And then, of course, people's instincts began to reveal themselves. John's gospel, as we've seen when from time to time we've been looking at it, has all kinds of little design features in it. And one of the design features is this. It begins with a prologue and then goes on to describe a week in the life of Jesus. And then it ends with a description of a week in the life of Jesus and with an epilogue. And this is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. He has been away from Jerusalem because his life has been in danger and he knows his time to offer himself on the cross has not yet come. But now the time has come and he's moved to the proximity of Jerusalem and it looks as though he's staying in a home that he loved very much, probably quite a large home, probably quite a prosperous home with Lazarus. And with the two sisters, Mary and Martha, he's probably arrived on the Friday before sundown when the Sabbath begins. And now it's probably the Sabbath evening. The sun has gone down. The day is over. And uh, Lazarus, Mary, Martha have invited friends together for a celebratory meal because their brother Lazarus has been raised from the dead. It's their, it's their way of expressing their gratitude for what Jesus has done in their family life. And then suddenly this action of Mary. Uh, I don't know if you ever see those uh, competitions for stories in under 200 words. They exist, and if you ever see the entries, some of them are fabulously good. And this would be a prize-winning entry. It's a story told in 200 words in my English Standard Version, in fewer words in uh, John's Greek. But it's one of those stories that you could compose an entire novel out of. Because as you, as you read these different names and as you know something about each of these different names and groups of people, you can, you can sense that you could, 
you could see Jesus in this story from all different points of view. I mean, through Lazarus's eyes, it, it would look different from through Martha's eyes, who's always serving, and through Mary's eyes, who loves the Lord Jesus so much, and, and through the eyes of Judas Iscariot, and through the eyes of the, the Jews and the Pharisees. And just a, just a few words in each instance, in a way, kind of tells you something about the whole universe in which these people live. I wonder if it's ever crossed your mind that simply as an individual, you see the whole universe, the whole of human history, everything. You see it as though it depended on you. Because without you, you would never be able to see it. It's as though each individual is, is like a whole world within this vast historical uh, reality. But to be able to sum up people the way John does just in a, a few sentences that, that kind of cracks open everything you need to know about them and especially everything you need to know about their relationship to and their response to the Lord Jesus. And actually it would make a great series but it's not going to make a great series to camp down on these few verses and explore the question, so what does Jesus look like through the eyes of Martha or through the eyes of Lazarus or through the eyes of a Pharisee? I want us to focus where John actually places the focus, and that is, what does Jesus look like to Mary and what does Jesus look like to Judas Iscariot? You can tell that these are the two figures that John brings on to center stage just by the amount of attention he gives to them. Granted, he only really gives one verse to Mary and three verses to Judas, but there, right at the center of the narrative, they, they emerge out of the shadows. And each of them expresses, obviously, in different ways, how they see Jesus and what their response to Jesus is. Mary's is obvious. Her action is an act of lavish devotion. They probably were a well-to-do family. Um, you know how financial people tell you you should always have three months living expenses in the bank just in case things go upside down for you? Um, tucked away in this house just for Mary for whatever reason was this a gift from her father don't know anything about that tucked away in this house as a little box worth 25,000 pounds and she takes it out clearly a deliberate considered act and she comes behind Jesus she opens her little box and she pours it out over the feet of Jesus. And the whole house is filled with the fragrance. Perhaps John says that to remind us of a couple of occasions in the Old Testament when the house where God was was filled with a fragrance. When the 
The tabernacle was filled with smoke when the temple was dedicated and this, this supernatural cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, appeared. And Isaiah in the temple, when again the, the house was filled with smoke, which really means the Shekinah, that cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire that led the people through the wilderness. God appeared in this unusual manifestation of himself. And it's just a little hint that perhaps John wants to put in here. The house was filled with the aroma to remind us of the identity of this person. This is the person he had described in his opening words as the Word of God who was with God, who was face to face with God. This is the Jesus who will later pray that his glory will become visible. This is the Jesus about whom John had told us in the prologue. What we saw in him was nothing less than the glory of God. And so I suspect there's a little hint to people who read his gospel with some sense of all that he has been teaching us and with some sense of the teaching of the whole of the Bible. It's putting something into the lenses through which we read this story to see that Mary has recognized who Jesus is. And so her worship of him, her devotion to him, is reminiscent of what happened in those great occasions in the Old Testament when people recognized the presence of God and loved him and came to worship him and to adore him. And it's such an interesting <clears throat> illustration of a, a very obvious principle, isn't it? That one person's deep devotion to Jesus makes an impact on everybody in the room. Uh, you may have seen it happen. I've seen it happen. The, the obvious, eminent devotion of one person to the Lord Jesus almost demands that everyone in the room think about the Lord Jesus and their response to him. And we're given a series of illustrations of that. And the big one, of course, is Judas Iscariot. If Mary's action is an act of lavish devotion, then Judas's reaction is that this was an act of prodigal waste. And people would think that, wouldn't they? Uh, if you loved somebody so much that you lavished your most precious possession upon them, gave up your most precious possession for them, there would be some people who would reason and even speak exactly the way Judas Iscariot did. And you notice he couldn't keep it in. Some people manage, he couldn't keep it in. It was an indication of how deeply he felt the intensity of his reaction. And immediately he speaks in public. Reminds me of a letter I read 
This is a long time ago. I think it was in the Evening Times in Glasgow when I was a boy at school. It was a heart-rending cry from a mother writing into the newspaper. I mean, the newspaper about her daughter. It was a cry, well, will somebody out there do something about my daughter? And you would think this is the kind of thing that you would keep to yourself. What was it that had so impacted her that she just couldn't keep it in? Well, the letter explained. Her daughter, these were days when 4% of the population went to university. Her daughter had gone to university. She'd graduated from university. She was going to some distant land to be a missionary for Jesus Christ. And the mother was writing in, I'll I'll never forget it, this despairing cry, is there nobody there who can tell my daughter that she's wasting her life? Reminds me of somebody I used to play golf against in the day who relayed to me through a friend 30 years later. You know, I thought Sinclair would do well in his life and not end up doing what he's doing and Judas couldn't keep it in and what he couldn't keep in nobody else really knew but John makes very clear doesn't he Jesus evoked Mary's devoted love and Mary's devoted love evoked Judas's hostility to Jesus and John makes it clear doesn't he he says in parenthesis in verse 4 you do know that within a matter of days Judas was going to betray Jesus and then he tells us what Judas said why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii basically a year's wages you notice what he's doing this is a very interesting thing you should always notice this that sometimes people who are really hostile to Jesus will take the high moral ground notice that how in, in our world in which The teaching of Christ is actually being officially rejected. That it's usually, nobody ever says what Jesus said is rubbish. Let's take the high moral ground. Progress, justice, equality. But they're not looking at things through the lenses that Jesus has prescribed. I always need to be very careful of people who take the high moral ground. And Judas took the high moral ground. I mean, didn't he? This has just been wasted on Jesus. Absolutely wasted on Jesus. And think what we could have done with, uh, with 25,000 pounds. Think what we were doing St. Peter's with 25,000 pounds. I mean, think what we were doing St. Peter's with 60 pounds if I could sell my perfume. Sort of spraying all over the place. Not planned. (laughs) Jonathan, have the perfume afterwards. You get the point, don't you? The heart disguised. You know, my friends, if we could 
if we could somehow or another have, have a, an amazing camera uh, that, that could help us to see what's in people's hearts, we would often see that what's in the heart is the very reverse of what they are trying to tell us they really believe. Christians desperately need to know that. That there is a huge gulf between the righteousness that people claim for their deeds and what it masks of their response to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a response of antagonism. And John tells us what was in his heart. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag. See, this is the indication nobody knew. Remember later on when Judas leaves the room in order to betray Jesus? Everybody in the room except Jesus thought he was going to engage in mercy ministry. Well, you and I, we would have spotted Judas a mile away. We would never have spotted Judas any more than the other disciples spotted Judas. They trusted Jesus. They trusted Judas. They had entrusted Judas with the role of treasurer. But he was skimming off the bag. And the real reason for his reaction was because he was thinking, what went on Jesus' feet could have been in my hands and in my pocket. And it's such an illustration of the, the, the reality of Judas's life is he is against Jesus. He is against Jesus. Masks at all. A friend told me an amazing story last week that uh, when our family were, were church hunting when they moved to a new city. It was in the United States. They went to this little church and no idea what was going on, but middle of the service, a lady stood up to read the scripture lesson. And uh, she, she read, you know, she was mumbling away. And then suddenly she, she bellowed, I am the Lord Almighty. Very dramatic. And she said, my friend said to her embarrassment, her a little boy shouted out, that's not fair. I want to be the Lord Almighty. <laughs> out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, eh? That was really the issue. The issue was really, who deserves the lavishness of this? Me? Or him? It's the, it's, the, it's the most basic division in our world. It's the most basic division in our society. It actually underlies the divisions that we see in our society. He who is not for me, says Jesus, is against me. He who doesn't follow me rejects me. And so on the one hand, you have this marvelous act of lavish devotion and on the other hand you have this tremendous reaction that sees it all as simply a prodigal waste and it's interesting isn't it that when you see when you see a Christian expressing in one way or another maybe how they sing maybe what they say maybe what they do 
when you see them expressing lavishness in their love for Jesus, wholeheartedness in their love for Jesus, your immediate instinct will tell you a great deal about yourself. And you notice what Jesus does. Actually, he appeals to the Bible. John doesn't tell us this, but he appeals to the Bible. He says, you will always have the poor with you. How dare you say that? Well, he would say, because Deuteronomy 15 says it. You will always have the poor with you. Meaning, meaning Judas, if you follow me, in God's providence, you may have endless years to bring blessing to the poor. The other apostles did. Think of what they did for the poor. But you will not always have me with you. And he makes this unusual statement. He goes on to say, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, if you have a modern version, you'll notice all kinds of little numbers or letters there that kind of indicate nobody is really very sure what's the best way to translate this. One of the best scholars suggests that what Jesus is really saying to Judas is this. If she had kept it for my burial, I would never experience the lavishness of her devotion, and you would never see it. So she has done well. That's what we remember. That's the thing we most of all remember about this woman, the lavishness of her devotion to Jesus when Jesus could experience it. You know, we've all too late said to ourselves, I wish I'd said to them, I wish I'd done to her. But what was so powerful about the instincts of Mary's devotion to the Lord Jesus was that actually she, she couldn't keep it in. She just, she just had to show Jesus how much she loved him. And she does something that is, is staggering, really. Um, it would be unusual in our culture. It was really unusual in this culture. Remember how uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that a woman's glory is in her hair? That's why when women go for, to the hairdressers, it costs four times as much as, you know? It's, it's true. You know, you young men, you know her glory is in her hair. And you see what she's doing then. You see the symbolism of this. That with her hair she stoops down and she, she is, is she making sure that all of it will go into Jesus? That none of it will be wasted? Is she, is she wiping it over his feet? It's, it's not very clear, but you see what she's doing. You remember the hymn that says, I lay in dust life's glory dead. O love that will not let me go. What's my response? I lay in dust life's glory dead. And from the ground there blossoms red life that will endless be. And it's all here. It's all, it's all acted out here. So you can see what Jesus was, what, who Jesus was and what she had grasped he was going to do because she'd obviously learned much about him 
about who he was, that he was going to be the resurrection and the life. And he couldn't be the resurrection and the life unless he, first of all, was the death. And he couldn't be the resurrection and the life to us unless the death he died was our death for our sins. All of this, at least vaguely, she would have been able to grasp before it became crystal clear to her and to others in the resurrection. So, who Jesus was and what he was going to do for her, what he had already done for her, evoked deep devotion, but it did something else very telling. It set her free from the superglue of possessions. Okay, what's the most valuable thing in your house? Do you hold it, or him, or her, with an open hand, and say, Jesus, it's yours? Not many of us have anywhere in the back room tucked away 25,000 pounds. And not many of us have anything that's worth 25,000 pounds. There were a car you bought the week afterwards that was no longer worth 25,000 pounds. And then there's yourself. And there's another thing here. Jesus drew out of her her deep devotion. Jesus had obviously freed her from the superglue of possessions. But you know, the other thing is, I think that Jesus must have delivered her from the bondage of other people's opinions. And what a snare that is for Christians too. And this is a wonderful thing. She's lost sight of everybody else. doesn't matter to her what other people think. doesn't even matter to her. What was Martha thinking? We could have got somebody hired help to do the washing up if we'd sold that. And she'd been delivered from it. Because Jesus was so big to her, so wonderful to her, so worthy of her love and devotion that, that people... You see, this is how you, see how... you see how it is that our governments and our government will never learn that the law can never produce grace. And here we are in our country with all our laws, and it's all over the Western world, seeking to build up our youngsters by law. But you see what happens here? It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and love for him that delivers her from the opinions of others and gives her space to grow tall and strong for the Lord Jesus. And it's wonderful to see it. And then... Those people made their own way. There were two aromas probably in their noses. The aroma of Mary's gift. And the stench of Judas's response. And it's often that way. Paul says every Christian leaves an aroma behind him or her. Um, 
I think you could think about it this way. When you leave the room, when you leave the office, when you, when you leave the classroom, when you leave the social gathering, what's the aroma that you leave behind? Either my sense of smell is going, which is altogether possible at this age, or churches are not so full of perfumed ladies as they used to be. Used to be a great trial to me, and evangelical churches seem to be the worst. I don't know whether it was a post-war thing. But you can eventually learn to identify people without seeing them by the scent they wore, you know? I mean, you could become quite an expert in number seven or, you know, for that matter, this stuff. Because you associated people and aromas together. I still remember I knew when my English teacher was coming into the room because uh, it wasn't as though the room was filled with clouds, but you had this kind of aroma of lavender water that preceded her and you knew the lesson was about to start and as Christians we smell a teenager I read in the newspaper so it must be true Japanese people thought British people smelt of milk and those of us who belonged to the post-war generation we we were having so much milk pushed down our throats that you thought You know, if you're not a milk-drinking nation, it's not surprising that these little boys and girls have this aroma of milk about them. And we're so used to that aroma, we can't pick it up. We are immunized. But the, the Japanese, who eat good fish and don't drink milk, apparently, that's, that's what they immediately sense. And that's the thing, isn't it? You and I usually don't smell what we're like That's true literally. It's even more true spiritually. But everywhere we go, says Paul, every room we enter, every conversation of which we are part, when we leave, we leave behind an aroma, an aroma of life or an aroma of death. And when everyone left the room, Judas left behind an aroma of death and Mary left behind an aroma of life because she loved Jesus. At a very, to me, rather moving illustration of this, the other week at a conference I was at uh, with Johnny Erickson Tada. He's been a long time and dear friend and those of you of my generation younger know who Johnny is. She had an accident When she was about 18, she's been a quadriplegic for the last 50 years. And she has been engulfed with the grace of God. And in the middle of her address, she began to sing. She she does it from time to time. She just, however, spontaneously began to sing. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Saviour, art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. 
And I knew it was really spontaneous because she said to me afterwards, you know, you should never burst out singing in the middle of an address unless you're absolutely sure you know the words. (laughs) (coughs) Do you know what I thought? If I did that, in any case, it would be out of tune. But if I did that, I think a lot of Christians, solid, good Christians, would be kind of embarrassed. There were 5,000 people there. I don't think there was a single one of them embarrassed. Because it was so evidently true. And it left this aroma. So, this is the story. There are more people in this story than we've time to look at. Um, but what does Jesus evoke from you? And, and what, does the, what does the lavish love of some Christian you know, the lavish love for Jesus that they express, what, what does it do for you? Embarrass you? Stiffen you? Cause you to be hostile? Make you take the higher moral ground? Or draw you because of the aroma of Christ's love to say, Lord Jesus, I want to love you like that too. To which he says, if you're going to love me like that, you'll have to trust me like that. And so that's what you need to do. Because that trust will lead to that love. And that love will express itself in all kinds of ways. And mean your life has an aroma of Jesus' life and grace to everyone you meet. Well, may it be so for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the amazing transformation that he makes in the lives of those who trust him and love him. And we pray, even as we, as we think about this little incident uh, passing in a few minutes in the pages of the New Testament, that you would do something fresh in our lives that we may love you with this kind of devotion for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.